I want to read Psalm 93, a great reminder. When we talk about things that result in controversy and apparent division, not just apparent, but real division from time to time, we need to remember that the Lord reigns, that the Lord is the one who has established his church, he is building his church, and he will continue to purify it until he presents it to himself, holy and blameless and pure. Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Father, we pray that we would make it our desire to be included in those that are considered holy in conformity with that intrinsic, unspotted, unblemished character of yours, that we would reflect your glory, that we would desire to see your glory spread on the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, This afternoon presentation assumes that you're going to remember some of the things from the morning presentation. I hope that's not too big an assumption. Maybe the professors will fill me in on that later, but uh, that is the assumption. And so we begin at that particular point. The title, if you wish a title, is The Consolidation and Challenge of Landmarkism in its Southern Baptist Context. Soon after the Cotton Grove Conference, Graves began consolidation of his position. He pursued a writing program of constant engagement of issues of baptism, ordination, communion, and credentials for Christian ministry. These were presented constructively and also by long interactions with views that he considered inconsistent with or antagonistic to his deeply felt principles. His impressive abilities as an editor... His reputation as a preacher and his clear stance for Baptist doctrine created a large ingathering of Baptists in step with his views. Among these was the pastor at Bowling Green, Kentucky, who in 1852 invited Graves to preach a protracted meeting. Not only was the meeting considered a success, Pendleton considered carefully Graves' argument for non-pulpit affiliation and embraced the position. Pendleton was born November 1811, became a Christian at age 17, and was baptized in 1829 in Bethel Church near Pembroke, Kentucky. He was licensed to preach in February 1831 and began his work of ministry prior to his 20th birthday. Having completed three years of theological and classical training at Christian County Seminary in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, and served two congregations as pastor, He accepted the call to Bowling Green in 1837. He remained until 1857 when he became professor of theology at Union University, at that time in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. The person who wrote the entry on Pendleton in Cathcart's Baptist Encyclopedia 
while Pendleton was still active in ministry, observed, his impatience with irreverence and looseness guards his library from the intrusion of liberalism and trash. This seasoned pastor joined forces with Graves and produced quickly two works that served the cause. The first, written in 1853, was entitled, Why I Am a Baptist. Pendleton settled on three reasons to isolate his distinguishing marks of being Baptist. One, because Baptists regard the baptism of infants as unscriptural and insist on the baptism of believers in Christ and of believers alone. His final sentence of that section, culminating a fifth objection to infant baptism, struck a note that resonated well with Graves, treating the tendency of infant baptism to supplant entirely believer's baptism and banish it from the world, Pendleton concluded, if there were no other objection to infant baptism that is amply sufficient to induce all who love the Savior and revere His authority to wage war against it as a war of extermination. His second reason stated, I am a Baptist because Baptists consider the immersion in water of a believer essential to baptism so essential that there is no baptism without it. The third reason Pendleton argued was, I am a Baptist because Baptists adopt the form of church government recognized in the New Testament, that is to say, the congregational form of government. In his argument on that point, Pendleton indicated a fervor for the position intrinsic to the landmark mission. There are not people, Pendleton proposed, who recognize more fully than Baptists the fact that the phrase, kingdom of Christ, implies that he is king, he is monarch, he is autocrat. When, therefore, he ordained the laws of his kingdom, he did not allow the impertinent interference of men or angels. There is no human or angelic legislation in the kingdom of Christ. Churches, organized according to the New Testament model, are required to execute the laws of Christ. That book, however, Why I Am a Baptist, was merely a warm-up for the one specifically written at the request of Graves, an extended pamphlet entitled An Old Landmark Reset. Pendleton brought together the ecclesiology of Why I Am a Baptist with the reality that only local churches could set apart ministers of the gospel. He sought, on that basis, to answer the question, ought Baptists to recognize paedo-Baptist preachers as gospel ministers? His book was designed to give answer to queries three and four of the Cotton Grove resolutions. Can we consistently recognize the ministers of such irregular and unscriptural bodies as gospel ministers in their official capacity? And is it not virtually recognizing them as official ministers to invite them into our pulpit or by any other act that would or could be construed into such a recognition? Acting on the conclusion that the unwarranted substitution of sprinkling for baptism of itself invalidates the claim of paedo-baptist societies to be considered churches of Christ, Pendleton extrapolated that into another conclusion that Baptists ought not to recognize paedo-baptist preachers as gospel ministers. In the same way that we refuse communion in our churches to unbaptized people, so should we refuse to invite unbaptized preachers into our pulpits. They are unbaptized and therefore out of the church, and the official acts of paedo-baptist preachers have no validity in them. 
In further consolidating his overarching program of ecclesiology, in 1855, Graves sought to give empirical substance to his doctrinal commitment to the unbroken perpetuity of Baptist churches from the days of John the Baptist until now. He republished A Concise History of Baptists by G.H. Orchard, originally published in London in 1838. Graves conceded that the work was not a full philosophic history. It nevertheless claimed to prove by the most unquestionable authorities the existence of large communities of Baptists in the various countries of Europe and a succession of them from the earliest ages down to the present time. He added, and we think the author has been successful. The third major figure giving strength to these energetic beginning days of the landmark influence was A.C. Dayton. Dayton had a profession as a dentist in Columbus and Vicksburg, Mississippi, from 1839 to 1852. During those years, he was a Presbyterian. In 1852, however, he became a Baptist through rigorous personal study of the issue of infant baptism in relation to the biblical examples of the baptism of believers. Shortly after that, he met J.R. Graves and, upon his request, wrote a piece for the Tennessee Baptist. Graves was deeply impressed with his writing ability, and Dayton was impressed with the earnestness and quick-mindedness of Graves. The two were friends and fellow laborers in the cause of landmark principles. In September 1854, Dayton became the corresponding secretary of the Southern Baptist Bible Board. In April 1858, he resigned from that position due to several complaints by certain members of the board. The non-landmark trustees were dissatisfied with procedural matters in his management of the Bible board, the amount of time he spent in writing for the Sunday School Union, serving as its president at the same time that he was corresponding secretary of the Bible board, and his activities in the cause of landmarkism. The Sunday School Union was the child of graves. His efforts to establish it received much opposition. When its organization was complete, it was fully controlled by the landmark group. One of Dayton's activities was a prolific writing output. In 1856, he published a novel that had appeared chapter by chapter in the Tennessee Baptist, entitled Theodosia Ernest. It told the story of a young Presbyterian lady who, with the help of her lawyer fiancé in interviews of the Presbyterian and Baptist minister, rejected her connections with Presbyterians as holding unbiblical views and became a Baptist. The book also had a sequel that also had a highly successful run of sales. As a romantic novel, it probably would not match up to what people expect today, but as a theological (laughs) argument, (coughs) it seemed to win the day. The story uses his own struggles in discerning the truth. The story uses his own struggles in discerning the truth between the contrary claims of Presbyterians and Baptists on baptism. He also published another theological novel entitled The Infidel's Daughter. His polemical talent was fully engaged in publishing Paedo-Baptist and Campbellite immersions, sounding a strong note on the issue of alien immersion. His book, Baptist Fact and Methodist Fiction, has a self-explanatory title. The dismissal of Dayton from the Bible board raised the ire of the growing landmark body in the Southern Baptist Convention. The Tennessee Baptist published a number of articles in 1858 decrying the action and was a major factor in the determined attempt to challenge several actions of the convention in Richmond in 1859. Dayton's lead article, defending himself from the accusations, began, 
As the corresponding secretary of the Bible Board of your convention, my character and official conduct belongs to the denomination. You have a right to know and will expect to know whether it be true, as has recently been charged upon me, that I have, as an officer of the convention, be, been guilty of such conduct as ought to subject me to the contempt and scorn of all good men. He insisted to the reader that it was against the charges, not the men who made them, that he wrote. For the men, he revealed, I have day and night upon bended knee earnestly to pray. Concerning one charge, he wrote, Although I was at that time corresponding secretary of the Bible Board, I was so wicked as to suggest the importance of an organization for the building up of the Sabbath schools and actually attended a meeting of a convention and aided in forming such an organization. And when my purpose was misapprehended and my motives impugned, I wrote some articles explaining and defending them. To all of this he pled guilty and cast himself upon the mercy of my brethren, explaining that he could not see then, nor could he see now, how it could be any more a sin and a secretary to do this than it was in the pastor of a church, or why I had not as good a right to advocate as any other secretary could have to oppose such an organization. To the second accusation, that he stirred up strife among my brethren, he confessed that if it were so, it was a grievous fault. If I have stirred up strife, I certainly did not intend to. What led to the so-called strife? In the innocency of my heart, I did propose a Southern Baptist Sunday School Union because I thought it to be just what the denomination needed. If brethren disagreed with me and quarreled over it, I'm very sorry. He did not foresee this, and even when he defended his actions against the rising opposition, Dayton affirmed, I think the bitterest opponent of the Union would admit that my replies to their attacks, when I have made any at all, are, as a general thing, kindly considered and calmly expressed. The third charge concerned material that he wrote for the Home and Foreign Journal, using space granted the Bible Board to promote book distribution. He did this by inserting letters of appreciation for certain books to show the real value of the board to the churches. Some months after he began this manner of using the space, the trustees issued a directive that he use the space in direct efforts for the Bible and not generally in reviewing and criticizing the character and influence of other books. Of course, it was clear that he was advocating those books that set forth the landmark position and criticizing those books that criticized the landmark position. So it wasn't just the, the idea of the promotion of books that the board was objecting to. It was, again, this pro-landmark, anti-landmark agenda that was just boiling at this time. Since that directive was issued, Dayton wrote that he had not written one word about books. Graves wrote a small article encouraging readers to read Dayton's entire defense, which would take several issues to complete, and noted, if the anti-landmark members of the board, aided by Elder Hillsman, Henderson, and Tustin, can succeed in destroying the character and reputation of Brother D as a Christian man, they destroy his all in this life. They have accomplished their first object and driven him from the board. And now, unless they believe in their hearts that he is a guilty man, will they not stay their hand? 
When the article was delayed by another week, Graves inserted an explanatory note promising to publish the defense in full and send copies of the paper to every Baptist in the South and so far as we have or can obtain their address, we shall send it to everyone in those states where these slanderous accusations against Brother Dayton and the Bible Board have been circulated. When Dayton stated the fourth accusation, it read that I have misrepresented the Bible Board in regard to its connection with the distribution of religious and denominational books. He gave a lengthy explanation based on the actions of the trustees encouraging coal portage and the necessity of book distribution. He believed this justified his actions concerning the formation of societies in the states in promoting the sale and distribution of Christian literature as well within the stated purpose of the board. He was accused in that context of misrepresenting the success of his administration of both the distribution process and the financial accounting. This led to accusations from both parties being aired in public with innuendos of misconduct and accusations of misrepresentation. Dayton's observation on this account gives a mere sample of how the rhetoric developed. Had they done this, my name would not have been paraded as a deceiver of my brethren over half the South, at least not until some opportunity had been given me for explanation, if not for justification. His introduction to this final section of defense indicated just how acerbic the entire situation, the entire interaction had become. In a former communication, he says, I gave some reason which I felt compelled to appear before you in this formal manner in defense of my character and conduct as the corresponding secretary of your Bible board. I do so with great reluctance and shall endeavor so to write that by God's blessing I may not be instrumental in causing any further alienation among my brethren. It grieves me exceedingly that any act of mine should have been the occasion of contention and bitterness, evil speaking, and heart burnings among those who should be all of one heart and one mind, and who, if they differ at all, should differ in love, like brethren of the same household. We have enough to contend with outside the Baptist ranks without attempting to destroy each other. Soon after these events, both J.M. Pendleton and A.C. Dayton were made co-editors of the Tennessee Baptist. Now, adding some real explosive fuel to this fire was the feud between R.B.C. Howell and Graves. Howell, whose views on communion coincided with those of Graves, after a sojourn in Virginia, returned to Nashville as pastor. Because Howell refused to support Graves in some of his landmark endeavors, and in fact, from his position in Virginia, had been one of his stoutest detractors, Graves brought in the church a series of attacks upon Howell. Charges were brought by some members of the church against Graves on September the 8th, 1858. On five counts, he was found guilty and excluded on October the 18th, 1858. Eventually, a small group of his supporters also were put out of the church and organized themselves into a church that they called the First Baptist Church of Nashville claiming that the group served by Howell was not in harmony with the historic Baptist doctrine. Clearly, Graves had in mind his own experience when he argued 22 years later that the autonomous right of one church to receive and discipline members did not intrude on the right of another church to do the same, even in the case of receiving to membership a person disciplined and dismissed by another one can sense the rising outrage of his feelings 
the nearer he comes to the specific treatment he felt he had experienced at the hands of Howell's church. So in making this point, he puts forth a hypothetical case that is clearly not all hypothetical. It is strangely advocated, he wrote, that the act of any one church, whether scriptural or not, binds the action of every other church in the world. That is, suppose a church in this place should, without just cause, and by a process not recognized in the New Testament, exclude a member, say, for contributing his money to foreign missions. That every other church of Christ would be bound to respect that act and would have no authority to restore that outraged member to his church rights of which he had been wickedly robbed in open violation of the law of Christ. Oh, excuse me. (laughs) Other issues continued to bubble on the surface of these issues, swelling and popping like molten lava at the mouth of an active volcano. Orchard's book was met with criticism as incompetently performed in the use of sources and the conclusions he drew from his use of other historians. Graves responded with justifications of Orchard, the credibility of the book, and especially the certainty of the historical point that he intended to demonstrate In addition, Graves published queries to Tustin, the editor of the Southern Baptist in Charleston, and one of the most active opponents of Dayton, concerning whether a Baptist minister in Charleston had preached in a small mission which was supported by Presbyterians and Congregationalists. In addition, Graves wanted to know if a Baptist minister had preached at the Huguenot Church, the historical Paedo-Baptist congregation in Charleston that was at that time destitute of gospel ministry. Tustin, with a little irritation, answered the queries. If this is the test of the editor's old landmark doctrine, to silence a Baptist minister from preaching for a destitute congregation who bear the name of a martyr church, whose memorials are there witnessing for Christ in the days of the bloody massacre of St. Bartholomew, and a century later at the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, whose pure theology comes down in the simplicity with which it was preached by Calvin and the earliest French and Swiss reformers, then we say that such partyism, which interdicts such a labor of love, is that tithing of mint, anise, and cumin, which for a dogma or a scruple would leave the needy to perish while it compasses sea and land to make one proselyte. The same issue of pulpit affiliation came into play in John L. Dagg's Manual of Church Order. Dagg certainly agreed that Baptists could not commune with Paedo-Baptists because Jesus Christ expressly, as all of them confess, requires baptism as a preliminary and they have not been baptized. And again, he said, this time including a rejection of the legitimacy of alien immersion. It is very evident that we can neither receive baptism at their hands nor mingle with them at the holy table. Dag and Gage Pendleton's an old landmark reset in particular on this issue of pulpit affiliation. He sought an ironic way to dissent from the doctrine in saying, parties who agree with each other in their views of Christian doctrine and ordinances and whose only difference respects the mode of treating those who are in error ought not to fall out with each other on this question. His main reason for dissent is that he considered the call to preach not immediately conferred by the church, but by the Holy Spirit who qualifies men to preach the gospel, so that they preach with divine authority and would act in disobedience to God if they did not. 
He recalled that Paul was set apart by divine mandate to preach prior to his baptism. He pointed to the obvious help to Christians everywhere. Were, uh, he, he pointed to the obvious help to Christians everywhere were the preaching ministries of Whitfield, Edwards, Davies, and Payson, and asserts, if Baptists ought not to recognize such men as gospel ministers, no one ought. And the respect which they have received from men as ministers of the gospel must be offensive to Christ. Dag argued that ministers of the word, as such, are officers of the universal church, and that their call to the ministry by the Holy Spirit is complete in itself without the addition of outward ceremony. Many kinds of corruptions can inhibit the clarity of what is a genuine gifting and calling for ministry, but those do not necessarily invalidate God's call. Dag had invited Pedro Baptist to preach with great edification to his people, and had had Baptists to preach that left a significant doctrinal mess behind them that he had to put in order. Church communion and public proclamation of the gospel are distinct functions, he argued, operating in different spheres with different purposes. The conflicts through the 1850s set the stage for a direct challenge to the business and protocol at the 1859 Southern Baptist Convention held in Richmond. This location was not an advantage to the purposes of Graves and his contingent, for it was in the geographical heart of anti-landmark sentiment. As the Credentials Committee recognized the delegates or the messengers approved, and these, these words are sort of used uh, interchangeably at this time. There's not been a sort of an uh, ideological framework set to the vocabulary. Now uh, the convention calls all of these messengers, not, not delegates for several reasons. But they're called delegates, they're called messengers at this, at this time. Recognized the delegates approved according to the bylaws, J.R. Graves requested that he and his contingent be seated as the true First Baptist Church of Nashville, leaving R.B.C. Howell and his group out. That request was rejected, and R.B.C. Howell, along with six other men, were seated from that church. Graves, however, along with J.M. Pendleton, A.C. Dixon, and 14 other men, were given seats as representatives from the General Association of Middle Tennessee and North Alabama. It is a great irony of history that Graves, a clear champion of the exclusive rights of local churches, was seated as a messenger from an association. At each convention, preachers were, preachers were assigned to various churches in the host city to preach on the Lord's Day. The assignments for 1859 were diverse and partook of the tensions of the hour. The ministers assigned to preach in the various churches of the city included the First Baptist Church in the morning, Reverend Richard Fuller, the night, J.R. Kendrick from South Carolina, Second Baptist Church, morning, Reverend P.H. Mell, Georgia, afternoon, Reverend J.P. Boyce, night, Reverend G. Anderson, Missouri, Grace Street, now listen to this group of preachers, I wish I could have been there this day, Reverend Basil Manley, uh, South Carolina, morning, afternoon, Reverend R.B.C. Howell, Tennessee, night, Reverend J.M. Pendleton, Tennessee. Preachers also were appointed to preach at Light Street, Belvedere Hill, Sydney, Port Mayo, Manchester, First African, Second African, Ebenezer African, Manchester African, Light Street African, 
Sycamore Disciples, First Presbyterian, Second Presbyterian, Third Presbyterian, United Presbyterian, Duval Street Presbyterian, Trinity Methodist, Centenary Methodist, Clay Street Methodist, Union Station, Wesley Chapel, Rockets Methodist, Siemens, Bethel, and St. John's Episcopal, Manchester Methodist, and Universalist. <laughs> That's the one that really got me, though. But, I mean... I mean, if you're asked to go preach the Universalist, would you do it? Uh, I guess. That's <laughs> anyway, this appointment, this appointment session adjourned with prayer by Brother J.R. Graves. It certainly is ironical again that Graves was asked to dismiss this segment of the day in prayer since the appointment of men to preach in such a variety of congregations would run counter to a core conviction of his. Many of these appointments contradict his understanding of the relation between the ministers of those congregations, as well as the very character of such congregations as societies that oppose and corrupt the doctrines of Christ. One wonders at this irony, and perhaps the purposeful nature of such a request from the chair, that graves be asked to seek God's blessing on the preaching of which he could only disapprove in many cases. The practice of inviting other ministers to participate in the proceedings also was challenged. The traditional time came for this invitation. Resolved that ministering brethren, not delegates, be invited to take seats with us and participate in our deliberations. Those that responded to this, or in, in, in this invitation, included W. Rollinson, New Jersey, M.P. Jewett, New York, T.P. Crawford, Shanghai, China, who eventually applied some strict landmark principles to his work as a foreign missionary, and then the truly controversial part of this tradition. On motion of Brother D.P. Bester, Alabama, resolved that the president tender to the preachers of other denominations of Christians the regard and respect of this convention and invite them to seats on the floor. This action had been challenged in the 1855 convention by the newly developing synthesis of Landmark Baptists. John A. Broadus noted in his memoir of J.P. Boyce, it may be well enough to mention that at this meeting of the convention, that is the one in 1855 in Montgomery, some of us for the first time encountered a new term and an idea which for the next few years awakened no small controversy. He referred to the landmark of pulpit affiliation discussed a year before by J.M. Pendleton in the book published by Graves. Consequently, in 1855, when the resolution was offered to invite members of other denominations to participate in the deliberations of the body, it was sharply challenged. The debate on the issue lasted the entire day. In the end, the resolution was withdrawn. John A. Broadus, recalling this event 40 years later, writing in 1895, said, after the day's discussion, it was proposed to end the matter by letting the resolution be withdrawn upon the understanding that those who saw no objection to its passage would concede thus much to the views of their brethren who objected so strongly. But now the issue was present again. It was moved by Brother R.S. Hart, Virginia, that this motion be laid on the table, which was decided in the negative. 128 voting in the affirmative, 190 voting in the negative. To remove the incongruity of non-Baptists participating in a Baptist convention, Brother T.H. Watts from Alabama moved the following amendment 
add the words, to witness our proceedings. Brother J.P. Boyce of South Carolina moved the previous question, which he afterwards withdrew. On motion, after discussion, it was agreed that both the resolution and the amendment should be withdrawn. The landmark group had won their point. Another challenge concerned the election of the president of the convention. Howell had served in the position since 1851 at each biennial convention. Grays was determined that the same position of influence would not continue for Howell. In spite of his opposition, however, Graves could not muster the numbers in light of the number of delegates there from non-landmark areas around Richmond. Howell won the election. The tellers announced that of 434 votes cast, 218 were necessary to a choice. RBC Howell received 228. J.B. Jeter, 95, Richard Fuller, 54, and 57 votes were scattered. The minutes then say, The president-elect returned his thanks in appropriate terms for the honor conferred, which he respectfully declined. Howell knew that Graves' organized opposition to him would cause several eruptions of opposition and debate and perhaps derail the entire business of the convention. Four more ballots were necessary before a president could be elected. Friday, 4 o'clock, Basil Manley Sr. presiding. The tellers reported no election of president and were instructed to collect the ballots again. Then again, the minutes. The tellers appointed to collect ballots for president reported the second time, no election. The tellers reported the third time, no election of president. The tellers reported on the fourth ballot that Brother Richard Fuller of Maryland was elected president. The president-elect returned his thanks in grateful terms. Though Graves had not defeated Howell, the presence of his sympathizers led to his resignation. Howell and Graves were both allowed a large part in the convention proceedings. The next major challenge came with the report of the Bible Board. The very existence of the Bible Board was challenged because of its dismissal of A.C. Dayton as its corresponding secretary. The Bible Board made its report through Brother E.P. Walton, corresponding secretary, the treasurer's report of the same board was read by Brother E.J. Willis, Virginia, and referred to Brother G.F. Adams' auditing committee. When the committee appointed the boards reported, the report was adopted, accepting the nominations for the Bible board. They were waiting to do the nominations later. Then the first attempt at a radical alteration of the report on motion of W.C. Buck, Alabama, ordered that the Bible board be abolished. One can only imagine the parliamentary discussion that might have occurred, but the minutes only record that motion was laid on the table. The full report of the committee on the board was then presented. Procedurally, the report, the report was adopted. Then the second challenge came. Brother J.H. Corley, Georgia, moved the, that the report be amended to strike out all after the word report. That means the second line of the title. There's two lines in the title, the last word report, and then there are about 10 pages of report. And so he says, strike out everything after the word report and insert, they recommend that the Bible board be abolished. Which motion was rejected? Thereupon, the original report was adopted. Then a third attempt came by way of putting the board under the power exclusively of those who sympathize with the landmark direction given the board by Dayton. On motion of Brother, Brother W.C. Buck, Alabama, ordered that the nominating committee be instructed to nominate a Bible board at Macon, Georgia, which motion was laid on the table. 
Eventually, a board was nominated that included only non-landmark adherents from Nashville. Though they did not kill the Bible board, it died in 1862 as a result of privations experienced during the Civil War. The final point of challenge came with the report of the Foreign Mission Board. Having initially been energetic in the work of foreign missions as supported by Southern Baptists, J.R. Graves underwent a rather quick change in his attitude toward the Foreign Mission Board after 1854. He wrote in 1858, No man has a lower view of the authority of a missionary board to dictate to missionaries or churches than we have. He explained, We do not believe that the foreign board has any right to call upon the missionaries that the churches send to China or Africa to take a journey to Richmond to be examined touching their experience, call to ministry, and soundness in the faith. It is a high-handed act and degrades both the judgment and authority of the church and presbytery that ordained him, thus practically declaring itself above both. In early 1859, he warned that certain brethren who had a controlling influence on the convention were trying to centralize and consolidate its power against the churches and the associations. If they succeeded, Graves warned, they would destroy the present union of Southern Baptists in foreign missions. At this meeting in 1859, one motion was made by W.H. Clark, missionary to Africa, to appoint a committee to revise our present system of missionary operations and report such challenges, such changes and modifications, if any as may be deemed necessary at this session. The motion was spoken to by Richard Fuller, J.W.M. Williams, T.P. Crawford again, and E.J. Willis. D.G. Daniel offered a substitute motion that a committee of one from each state in connection with the board be appointed to inquire whether any changes can be made in our present missionary organization that will add to its efficiency. These were then taken up in the afternoon session, and both the resolution and the substitute were laid on the table. On that action, W.P. Chilton of Alabama moved, whereas it has been suggested that improvements can be made rendering our system of missions more efficient, and several good brothers as well as members of the mission board are desirous of perfecting the same as far as possible. Be it therefore resolved that a committee of 15 be appointed by the president who shall consider and report to this convention whether any and what improvement can be made in our system of missions and missionary operations. Then in order to expedite the process, A.M. Poindexter proposed a resolution, resolved that each person having changes to submit touching our missionary organization be requested to present them in writing to the committee. When the committee reported, a long discussion ensued with many contributors, including J.P. Jeter, J.P. Boyce, J.R. Graves, and J.C. Furman. During the discussion, the Board of Foreign Missions was requested to read the rules of the board governing their relation with missionaries under appointment. Then the minutes record this fascinating statement. By general consent, suspended the rule to adjourn at 2 o'clock. Brother J.R. Graves entitled to the floor. Reporting on this later, the Southwestern Baptist remarked that that the convention wanted every objection to be heard and and considered fully and fairly. The closest scrutiny was invited and the Foreign Mission Board submitted to the minutest catechism. The editor described Graves' speech, a long speech, as well considered. After giving the popular objections to the system, 
Graves' table, the last objection, and acknowledged that he was fully satisfied and ready for a hearty cooperation. After the speech, however, he spent the night in a room at First Baptist Church with J.B. Taylor and A.M. Poindexter, both secretaries of the Foreign Mission Board, debating them on a number of issues until, as Poindexter's young son recalled, who was waiting there for his father and fell asleep, and when he waked up, there these three men were talking, laid into the night, and uh, he just uh, said that they talked until the east was glowing and the roosters crowing. (laughs) What a fascinating discussion that must have been. Pity for us that we do not have a verbatim. In the report of the committee the next day, they revealed that no plan has been suggested and none occurs to the committee contemplating a change in our present system of missions or missionary operations not subject to objection. In light of the apparent blessing under the present operation, the committee presented the following resolutions. One, resolved that in the judgment of this convention, it is inexpedient to make any changes in the existing plans of missionary operation. Two, resolved that in case any churches, associations, or other bodies entitled to representation in this convention should prefer to appoint their own missionaries and to assume the responsibility of defraying their salaries and and entire expenses, that the respective boards are authorized under our present organization and fundamental rules to become dispersing agents of the bodies so, appointed, so appointing missionaries and appropriating funds, whether such contribution be intended for the education or the evangelization of the heathen, provided that such expenses of forwarding the money as to have specially to be, as, as have specially to be incurred be borne by the contributors." On motion of G.W. Sansom, Washington, D.C., resolved that as members of this convention we express our earnest conviction that personal controversies among pastors, editors, and brethren should from this time forth more than ever be studiously avoided. On motion of, motion of Brother I.T. Titchener, resolved that the editors of our religious papers be requested to publish the above resolution. About two weeks after the convention, Graves wrote an editorial in which he said, There is no reason why our Baptist denomination may not cooperate harmoniously in missionary matters. He referred to the fact that some would want, in effect, to capitulate to the board for the appointing power and instruction of the missionaries, while other churches and perhaps associations would appoint their own missionaries using the board to transmit their funds, while the missionaries would be amenable to those who sent them forth. Here are two plans of operation submitted to the brethren, he wrote. Let them make their election. Let them remember that they have no good cause for doing nothing. Then calling upon one of the the enduring marks of true churches, he reminded his readers the missionary spirit enters essentially into a church organized according to the gospel. At the time, therefore, when Graves and his conscientious sympathizers in landmark tenants had strength of numbers, deeply felt motivation, and specific fronts on which to challenge prevailing convention policies. They were unable fully to bring their specific agenda to pass. The views, however, for which they argued had gradually taken root in the minds of many people and in varying degrees settled into the corporate theological convictions of the convention. Graves himself noted in 1880, I record it with with profound gratitude 
There is only one Baptist paper in the South of the 16 weeklies that approve of alien immersion and pulpit affiliation. I do not believe that there is one association in the whole South that would today endorse an alien immersion as scriptural or valid. And it is a rare thing to see a Paedobaptist or Campbellite in our pulpits. And they are no longer invited to seats in our associations and conventions anywhere south. The heavy drift of sentiment throughout the whole south and the great west and northwest is strongly in favor of Baptist churches doing their own preaching, ordaining, baptizing, and restricting the participation of the supper to the members of the local church celebrating it. The Civil War greatly dispersed the leadership of the landmark movement and interrupted the consolidated energy which it had gained by 1859. The absorption of ideas, however, led to several results subsequent to that war by several decades, showing the residual strength of its ideas. Graves published his Old Landmarkism, What Is It?, in 1880, and in 1881 followed it with intercommunion inconsistent, unscriptural, and unproductive of evil. These books summarized and gave concentrated presentation to what already had been well developed. The reception of them, however, showed that with few exceptions, Graves' brethren in the convention were, in the words of James Tull, willing to let him have his say. This did not mean, however, that such a feeling of benignity reigned that no more conflicts would emerge. The Whitsitt controversy at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary was based on the landmark commitment to perpetuity of Baptist churches through history. Whitsitt, the president of the seminary and professor of church history, argued from his investigation of sources that Baptists as we know them today can trace their historical origin to 17th century English separatism and that they did not practice immersion until 1641. The reaction against this position, led by T.T. Eaton uh, and uh, the, uh, the historian, Christian, uh, Eaton was pastor of the Walnut Street Baptist Church and editor of the Western Recorder, was so severe and became so pervasive convention-wide that Whitsitt was forced to resign the presidency of the seminary in 1899. In 1892, Tarleton Perry Crawford, a seasoned missionary in China and a colleague of Lottie Moon, was dropped from the role of missionaries because of his consistent criticism of the policies of the board. He wrote a book entitled Churches to the Front, extrapolating his idea of mission work from the principle of the authoritative status of the local church. Crawford wanted to maximize the action of the local church in missionary work and minimize any involvement of boards or conventions. The church, he said, can never abdicate nor transfer any part of its work to the control of an outside body. It can never sanction the formation of any central power within itself or within the denomination to which it belongs, but must, as a body, hold control of its ministerial gifts, contributions, and missionary work. He longed to see a thorough revolution, both in the spirit and in the methods of our missions affairs. The result was an independent movement of missions known as the Gospel Mission Movement. Dissatisfaction with the board system also spurred two other separations from Southern Baptist participation. In 1905, a group of 52 Baptist churches in Arkansas, led by Ben Bogard, deeply objected to the financial method of representation at convention meetings and wanted it put on a strictly church basis. They also objected to the power put into the hands of boards by the convention to appoint and remove missionaries at pleasure. And they also objected 
to comity arrangements with any other denominations of Christians in missionary work. Should the convention not concede at least to some of their requests on these measures, they said, we shall trouble you no more. They made good on this promise to leave and form the Baptist General Association. They also disclaimed being the instigators of the division. Our sincere desire, they wrote in their memorial to the convention, is for peace and harmony among Baptists. But we want this peace and harmony to be on, a bi- on Bible principles and methods. We love peace, but we love principle better. First pure, then peaceable. Though they had raised the protest, they refused any admission of guilt in provoking the division which has been troubling our Zion. We have protested against what we honestly believe to be unscriptural principles and methods of work. And we think those who have persistently clung to those objectionable principles and methods are the cause of the division. He that drives the wedge is guilty of splitting the log. The priority of the local church in conducting all the tasks assigned to the church, as opposed to relinquishing such tasks to a convention controlled by boards, constituted the substance of the schism in Texas that brought into existence the Baptist Missionary Association. Deeply enmeshed in the long-term struggle were powerful personalities on both sides of the issue. S.A. Hayden, denied a seat at the Texas Convention, 1897 through 1900, waged his campaign of opposition through the pages of the Texas Baptist Herald. He vigorously presented the cause for a church rather than a financial representation as the basis of conventions, created suspicion of waste of money at the board level of the Baptist General Convention of Texas, and contended that the churches were not fully informed of how their contributions were distributed. Responding to his arguments, many churches in Texas decided to drop their support and affiliation with the BGCT. Hayden joined them and formed the East Texas Baptist Convention on July 6, 1900. Within the year, the name was changed to the Baptist Missionary Association of Texas. The Arkansas and Texas groups united in November of 1905, forming the Baptist General Association, which became the American Baptist Association in 1924. As Dr. Holmes mentioned this morning, a schism occurred in 1950, and the seceding group became the North American Baptist Association, changing its name in 1969 to the Baptist Missionary Association of America. Uh, The pressure... (coughs) for a convention more immediately answerable to the, local, uh, to the local churches eventually began to bear fruit in the convention. The original perception of the Southern Baptist Convention is described in Article 3 of the 1859 Convention Annual. A biennial convention shall consist of members who contribute funds or are delegated by religious bodies contributing funds, and the system of representation in terms of membership shall be as follows. An annual contribution of $100 for two years next preceding the meeting, or the contribution of $200 at any time within said two years shall entitle the contributor to one representative. An annual contribution of $200 as aforesaid shall entitle the contributor to two representatives. And so, for each additional $100, an additional representative shall be allowed. For large societies, one representative for every $1,000 annually contributed for two years. The number of representatives shall never exceed five. 
Not until the 1930s did the convention move to change this method of representation. And if you look at the minutes in these early years and see how the, the delegates were, were seated, you have uh, people from like the Virginia Women's Missionary Society, such and such association. Sometimes you have individuals, the, the very uh, zealous missionary uh, uh, local evangelist named W.C.C. Crane would contribute money each year, and sort of he was his own delegate uh, sitting. And so you have all of this varied way of forming the convention because it was not seen as a convention of churches. Their, their motive was to protect the autonomy of the local church so as not to uh, create a massive organization that could not be adequately represented by local churches. But in doing that, they created a convention that supposedly was a Southern Baptist convention, but it had really nothing, very little to do with the will of the churches per se, but of the people who simply could come to the convention as a result of their contributions. Not until the 1930s did the convention move to change this method of representation. The landmark arguments for more than 60 years finally brought the convention to a church basis of representation. Those who are accepted to sit and participate in the convention are all from local churches, not other associated organizations or societies or individuals. There still is a financial requirement, however, for all who participate must show their material interest in the benevolent and mission work to which the churches, through the convention, are committed. In addition, there is presently a much stronger encouragement for local church participation in every aspect of the missionary thrust of the convention, boards, as far as possible, being merely facilitators of the missionary propensity of the churches. The wheels of providence often grind slowly, but they grind finely. As we seek to manage an understanding of the divisions of the past, perhaps it should be our prayer that we can see clearly to sort out the dross of bitterness, swagger, and personality conflict from the real truths that loom behind these high-pitched battles. I know that Southern Baptists are better today for the ideas as well as the resoluteness of conviction that drove those committed in conscience to the old landmarks. May we provoke one another to good works, see a more profound and pure participation of our churches in the work of the kingdom, and find the challenge to think with vigor and discipline about issues of divine revelation, a sanctifying and God-glorifying experience. Thank you.